Over the last few Sundays together, we have been steadily working our way through the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. And today we are turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God which is at work in you who believe. Most of us, I think, would agree that words matter. They have meaning. They have significance. And there are moments in our lives when what we say has a long-term effect on who we are and what we do. I'm thinking especially at the moment when I have the enormous privilege of usually standing right here in front of the communion table and I have a young couple in front of me to marry. And they take considerable amount of time to choose their wedding vows because words matter, they are significant, they are important. On other Sundays, I am down at the baptismal font and when a family come for a baptism, those baptismal vows matter. What you're committing yourself to is of significance. It's important. And this morning, as we come to First Thessalonians, we're going to look in some detail, and that's why I didn't want to rush through our study this morning of one verse. We're going to break it down a little and say, what do the words mean? Why do they matter? Here is the Apostle Paul writing to this young church in Thessalonica. We know several things about this young church in the midst of a vibrant, growing, important city. And over the last few weeks, we have discovered the following. That Paul visit, visited the Greek city of Thessalonica somewhere around the year 49 to 50 AD. It was a well-established city with a long history going back to the fourth century before Christ. If you want to know more about Paul's initial visit in Acts 17 verses 1 to 9, take a few moments this week and read it and you'll discover what happened on his initial visit. And during that first visit, as Paul was preaching the gospel and the gospel was beginning to impact and change lives, some of the Jewish leadership in the city got upset with Paul and they charged him with treason. Now, back in the year 49 to 50 AD, you could be put to death for treason. And what they argued was this, that here was Paul claiming that Jesus was king and not Caesar. And so it was, in essence, a misunderstanding of what Paul was teaching and a misunderstanding of the gospel. But nonetheless, he was... Uh, a mob gathered and Paul had to physically flee for his life. He headed down to Athens 
And some months later, Silas and Timothy joined him, and that's what initiated this letter called First Thessalonians, because he's heard great things about this young fledgling church. He's heard that they are seeking to live out their faith, that they're growing in their faith, and he's writing to encourage them. In fact, he's in chapter one, if you were with us, you'll remember, he writes to affirm them for who they are, and he also writes to appreciate them for what they're doing. And as we come into chapter 2, we're pausing at verse 13 this morning, because here is Paul laying out for this young church, highlighting, underlining, emphasizing, and saying to them, if you are ever to grow in your faith, if you are ever to be the people God is calling you to be, there are some basic, fundamental, essential, vital principles you need to be able to get your arms around. And not only get your arms around them, this is so important. You need to get it into your heart and mind and soul. And so with all of that, he writes verse 13. And we also thank God continually. Now notice what he writes. Because when you receive the word of God, the gospel, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Notice how he begins. And we also thank God continually. Paul, as I said moments ago, has heard wonderful things about the young church in Thessalonica. He's very excited for them. He's delighted at their growth in faith. And he writes, because when you receive the word of God, now notice that, when you received, what is Paul saying here? And also note, he says, the word of God. Now, it might well be that you have had this type of question. Someone in your neighborhood or someone in your work gets to know you a little and finds out you have a couple of children or grandchildren. It's beginning to get to know you. What do you do for hobbies and so on? And at somewhere in the discussion, you have told them that you go to church regularly, that you're a Christian. And they then push back a little and say, now, what is it Christians believe? And you go on to talk about the Bible. And they might say to you, now wait a minute, do you still believe the Bible today in a 21st century context? You still believe the Bible? Isn't it simply an antiquated collection of myths and fables, a kind of somewhat forbidding uh, rule book to live your life? How do you respond to that? And what do you do when, perhaps in your own life, there are moments when you're tempted to say, is the Scriptures really the Word of God? Is this God speaking to his children? Is that what we believe? Well, Paul, in writing to the folks at Thessalonica, is saying, highlighting for them the fundamental central place that the scriptures have in the life of any Christian and in the life of the congregation. 
It is, holds a place like nothing else. It has a primary place in our lives, and it should. Now, whenever you take up any book, there are a couple of questions you ask, naturally. What is it about? Secondly, we usually ask, who wrote it? And when it comes to those kind of questions when we're dealing with the scriptures, let me stand back a minute, give you the view from 37,000 feet, and help us to think for a minute that the Bible is not simply one book, but it's 66 books put into a single volume. It was written by over 40 authors over a period of about 1,600 years, it was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It's written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Its writers had vastly different backgrounds and positions in life. They included politicians, soldiers, priests, fishermen, shepherds, a tax collector, a king, a Jewish rabbi, and a Gentile doctor. And yet, within its pages, there is an overarching unity that is utterly spectacular and without precedence in any other form of literature. And having said all of that, let's begin to drill down a little. When we talk about the scriptures, what is it we're saying? Well, the first question is this. New Testament theologians will talk about the inspiration of Scripture. And that phrase comes out of what Paul has written. You received it not as the word of men, but as it is actually the word of God. Now, if you have in your mind an image where John or Peter or Jeremiah or Isaiah are almost acting like a secretary that God is dictating and they are busy writing down, that's not the most helpful image you need to have. Let me try and change that image a little and suggest this, that when John is writing his gospel and his epistles, when Peter is writing his epistles, when Paul is writing or Jeremiah or Isaiah or any of the Old Testament writers, it's more helpful in your mind to have an image of God working in and through what is being written. He works in and through the individual by taking that individual's personality, taking their character, taking their religious experience, taking the historical context and background they're living in, and he takes everything about that individual, and he leads and guides and directs and inspires that individual in their writing. And that's why you have this essential unity running from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Because the fo focus and purpose of the writing is always on God. It's always on his, what we would call the history of redemption. On his love for humanity. And that's why you have this singular unity running throughout the scriptures. Let me add another illustration, which I think is quite helpful to round this off. As an individual is writing and working and writing Romans or Galatians or First Thessalonians, 
Another helpful image is this, that imagine the Spirit of God like a symphony conductor. A symphony conductor has all sorts of musicians with a variety of musical instruments in front of them, and he uses their experience, their education, their personality as he's conducting the music and drawing out different harmonies, different melodies, different bass lines at different points. So the conductor is bringing together a creativity. He's bringing together a, a willingness, a spontaneity from the musicians that put or produce more accurately a spectacular symphony. Similarly with God, he's using Isaiah and his background and his experience or Daniel, or Jeremiah, or Hosea, and likewise in the New Testament, John for the Johannine epistles, or the Pauline epistles, or Matthew, or whoever the biblical writer is, and he's drawing it all together to create the Word of God. Now, when we talk about the Word of God, notice what Paul says, verse 13. We also thank God continually because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as it actually is, the Word of God. So his first point was, you received it. Now, why does he mean you received it? He means this that they'd heard the gospel preached, they had heard Paul's teaching, and in response to the love and grace of God, they did what? Repented of their sins, received Christ into their lives, and those lives were transformed. And when the Bible talks about the word of God, that's exactly what they mean. God not only breathes life into it, he uses it to transform and touch the soul. He uses it to refine us and shape us and fashion us. It has an impact on our life like nothing else. And most of us, I think, at some point in our life, as Christians have been, will, can tell you that they were going through a particularly tough period or things were not going well or there was a situation that was beyond their understanding. But in their daily quiet time, when they were reading their Bible and praying, it was almost as if a verse of Scripture jumped off the page, captured their attention, and... It was so applicable to the situation they were in. So when we talk about the scripture as a living, breathing word of God, that's what we mean. The Holy Spirit will take it and apply it to your life and it will impact and transform and renew and refresh us. That's what Paul is meaning when he says, when you received it, when it impacted your life, you received it as the word of God which transformed them. He then goes on to say, you accepted it. Now, what does he mean when he says you accepted it? Well, when God put together the scriptures, the question is, why did he do that? Why couldn't he simply be happy with sending prophets? Because he knew this, that when we write it down, we have a record of what was said, and it's applicable then to every and all generations. And that was his point. 
because he put it together for one purpose, to let us know how much he loves us. That was the point. He is a self-revealing God. He communicates with his children. He does it in the gospel. And here are the apostles being impacted by the gospel. They are then inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down their experience of who God is and more than that, who God actually is. And we know in subsequent generations what happens when we expose ourselves to the scripture. It transforms us. And he did it with one purpose in mind. And it was this. There was no ulterior motive other than to let us know how much he loves us. And when we set aside time and open up the scriptures what should happen is this. It should be like speaking to our closest, our dearest friend. We should look forward to it. We should come to it expectantly. We should come to it prayerfully. We should come to it with a sense of we can't wait to get there. We can't wait to spend time with him and speak with him and pray with him and listen to him speaking into our lives that's why God put the scriptures together so we could have intimacy with him. And so when we come to it, we come to it prayerfully, joyfully, expectantly. We receive it as the word of God. And as he goes on and says, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as it actually is the word of God. And then he adds, and notice what he says which is at work with you, or in you rather, who believe. Now, what does he mean by that? It's at work in you who believe. Well, there are two things incumbent upon us when we come to Scripture. Number one, we should come to it regularly. And by that, I mean daily. The temptation for us is this, that in the midst of busy lives, the temptation is to say, well, I'll get to my quiet time later in the day. And then Monday's over and it becomes Tuesday before you think, oh, I didn't get my prayer time today. I'll do it later when I get in from work. And of course, when you get in from work, so many other things. And it's Wednesday before you've opened up the scripture since Sunday. And you find yourself chasing your tail all week. And what happens is this, that eventually we begin to treat the scriptures like a medicine cabinet. It hangs up there in the wall. And where we're, when we're in an emergency, then we go to it. When we're in need, then we go to it. When we've been hurt, then we go to it. But the scripture teaches us the opposite. It teaches us when we come to it regularly, when we come to it prayerfully, whenever we are hurt, whenever there's emergency, whenever we're in need, we'll know exactly what it says. And we'll immediately turn to him in response, seeking the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct, to feed us and nourish us, coming to it regularly. Secondly, we come to it diligently. And what does that mean? That means coming to it prayerfully. Father, what are you saying to me today? 
What are the areas in my life that I need to submit and surrender to your rule and reign? Father, help me understand what you're doing. Let me see your hand at work. That's prayerfully coming to it diligently. And let me plead with you. Please try not to hurry your prayer time. Try not to hurry your prayer time. Savor it. Enjoy it. Rest in him. Unpack a verse in scripture. Whenever we come to scripture, we're immediately asking four questions. And those of you who worship with us regularly know this and to some extent are fed up with me saying, but let me see it again. Number one, what does the passage actually say? Not what do I hope it says, not what do I think it says, but what does the passage actually say, number one? Number two, what does the passage say about God? All too often we live in a cultural context of instant gratification. So we tend to say, what does this passage have to say to me today? It's a good question, but it's not the first question. The first question is, what does the passage actually say? Then you can work out what does it say to you. So number one, what does the passage say? Number two, what does the passage say about God? Number three, what does the passage say about me? Number four, is there something I must do? Because it's the application of Scripture that makes all the difference. All the difference in the world. In the New Testament epistle of James, James, who was the brother of Jesus. Now, can you imagine that being the brother or sister of Jesus, of coming from the same womb as Jesus? And James says, do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourself, but do what it says. Now hear that again. Do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourself, but do what it says. And in fact, he adds, and then you will be blessed. And James realizes that in busy lives, when there's so much to be done, it is not enough just to simply skim read through a passage in the morning and say, okay, thank you, I've got that, and rush out the door. Savor it. Rest in it. Enjoy it. Spend time with him. That's what James is saying. And then James goes on to say what? Do not merely listen and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Application. There is always, always, always application. It's not enough simply to read the scriptures. We have to apply them. Knowing the dimensions of Noah's Ark, knowing the diet of John the Baptist will not transform your life. It will not. But it's when you take the scriptures, you meditate upon them, you feed yourself heart and mind and soul and then apply them. That's when James says, then you will be blessed. When it comes to the scriptures, we don't obey out of some kind of servile fear. 
We obey because we know and love the author of Scripture. And that's why he's given it to us, that we would rest in him, be refreshed by him, be renewed and transformed by him. That's why it's important to come to it regularly and diligently. That's why it's important to receive it and accept it and grow in your faith. Remember the end of the verse of James? Do not merely listen and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says, then you will be blessed. I think most of us would agree that when we submit and surrender our lives and each aspect of our lives to his rule and reign, apply the scriptures in obedience to every aspect of our life, then blessing comes. Blessing never comes before obedience always after. Equipping, strengthening, enabling grace comes before obedience because it's out of that we do obey and then comes blessing. Let me encourage you please. This week, take your scriptures, spend time in it each day, don't rush it, rest in him and let him refresh and renew you. Why? Because it's crystal clear, you received from us the word of God as it actually is, not the word of men. Let's pray together. Father, as we enter into a new month and a new week, we ask, O oh God, that your Holy Spirit would be at work within us we would be sensitive enough to receive all that you have taught us this morning. Enable us to accept your word, to live out of your grace, not to rush through it, not to treat your word as some kind of medicine cabinet only for emergencies, but day after day this week to be refreshed and renewed by you. Enable us, please, to trust in your grace and in your promises, which are sufficient for our every need. Father, bless us, please, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.